to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're in week two of a series uh, called Improbable Icons, and um, just kind of a little backdrop on um, what's happening here. If you come on Sunday mornings as well, or if you watch online at nlclive.com, you may, maybe this morning you got to see this, but Pastor Brady got to Skype in and uh, say hi to everybody. He's recovering well after open heart surgery. Uh, still got a lot more weeks of recovery to go. Um, he's not allowed to drive for another month, you know. Um, but he, he seems to be doing well. He's in good spirits. So just continue to keep him in your prayers. And so we've, we've had the privilege of hearing from different guests and all that. Uh, this morning we heard from uh, good old Pastor Ross Parsley. And uh, it was just great to hear from Ross. And of course, you know, Ross was worship leader here for the better part of two decades. And uh, we sent him out a year and a half ago to plant a church in Austin, Texas. And he gave a good report and a great word uh, about all of that. You can, you can check that out. But this series, we started last week talking about Nehemiah. And, uh, but the series in general, uh, to talk about icons, and I- even that word is a funny word, uh, not a word we typically use, um, but I was telling you last week about how we have this desire in us to kind of have a people that we maybe look to or look up to, and, and uh, I confessed to you last week that I occasionally glance at the magazines in the aisle of the supermarket, you know, to, find, to see what celebrity is doing what, and then I find myself saying, why, why do I really care? Um, but, but probably all of you could say, you know, yeah, this didn't this happen with Schwarzenegger or this thing or that, you know, you kind of, or, or maybe you, you know, you watched uh, you know, Entertainment Tonight or you just kind of pick up things or you keep up with stuff on Twitter or whatever. We have this little bit of fascination uh, with people who are famous. And, and, and um, last week to kind of set this up, we said, well, is there a difference maybe between celebrity and royalty? Uh, is it wrong altogether to look to someone, but maybe it's, it's misleading to look to someone on the basis of their popularity. Maybe what we need is someone to look up to that has some sort of authority uh, in their life, and so they're in the distinction between maybe celebrity and royalty. Well, uh, when we think of icons, though, and this is why in different church tradition, or in the, in the Catholic church tradition in particular, you have saints, and in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, you have icons, you have these saints that you can sort of look to and say, look, here are men and women in our story that remind us of Jesus. Uh, that say to us, you know, this is what I think uh, Jesus might look like in our day and age, or maybe in a different day and age. And so there are these men and women that we sort of admire and we look to and say, yeah, this is a little bit of what it means to live out our faith uh, in Christ or to follow Jesus. Well, this series is about the men uh, and women in the scripture uh, that we might be tempted to say, well, uh, look, these are icons. And in many ways they are. Uh, Last week we said Nehemiah was an icon to us of faithfulness and what it means to really do something small and ordinary, but do it in such a way that we do it well over a long period of time and we find that we get wrapped up into the Jesus story somehow. The thing about these particular people that I'm choosing for this little mini-series is they're, they're, they are people uh, that you wouldn't think uh, should be in the Bible, uh, let alone get a book named after them. So it's, a, it's a, um, maybe a dangerous task to tr- try to say, well, let's Let's do one book of the Bible in one night. But I think sometimes that can be helpful because the goal here is not an in-depth Bible study and to parse grammar and to say, okay, look, let's look at this troubling passage and this, you know. 
Rather, the goal is let's take a macro kind of big wide-angle lens view of this character and see what maybe there's some, see something about their lives and their story that maybe we hadn't noticed before. And so last week we did Nehemiah. Tonight we're going to take the story of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a wonderful love story. If this were made into a modern movie, uh, it really has a lot of the same twists and turns that a modern uh, romantic movie, not that I watch, so okay, I do, um, but, but they, it takes a lot of those same twists and turns. But there's something about Ruth that I think maybe we can find encouragement from. Because even when you hear the word icon or you hear the word, okay, people that we look up to, uh, immediately there can be this sort of a reservation, and maybe walls start to go up, and you start to think, okay, Glenn, well, that's nice, but you're going to tell me about another person that there's no way I could live up to, or you're going to tell me about another person that I'm going to measure my life against and say, yeah, I'm a loser. I, I, there's no way I'm that. There's no way I'm that guy. There's no way I'm that girl, and maybe some of you are used to that being your experience at church, uh, come to church, you start to kind of feel good in the singing, and by the time the sermon's over, you walk out feeling like a dog with your tail between your legs, you know, just feeling lousy because the preacher's told you everything that you're not and everything you're supposed to be, and oh, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so maybe even just saying this, this word, that we're going to look at figures in the Bible who can be icons of something to us, uh, I, I think might make us nervous to say, well, Glenn, he, it's too late for that for me. I mean, it's one thing if this was a, a talk to a youth group or a college minister, but I, I, I'm not one of those students that was that desperation this weekend. Uh, I'm like, I, I've, I've had 40 years of life. I've had 50 years of life. I've gone through this. I've gone through that. This has happened in my marriage. This has happened in my job. This is a, and maybe, whatever the case may be, for some reason you say, that there's no way that I can measure up to this. Actually, a big reason for this series is to say, you might be surprised at the people that end up in this story. And Ruth is such an example. And so we'll start here. But, um, but okay, sorry, I got a little distracted here. Ruth is kind of like this classic love story uh, that opens with a bit of a tragedy. It opens with things uh, really going horribly wrong. Uh, and then there's this, out of this difficulty comes this moment where you see, you think, okay, look, this could be the hero of the story. And you see Ruth kind of uh, this moment with him, and you think, okay, he's going to be the hero, he's going to save the day, and then you find out, wait a second, there's another guy, there, there's this twist in the turn, like every good uh, Shakespeare uh, you know, play or something, there's always this little detour, and you think, uh-oh, and then you come back to it, and uh, everything ends well, and you think, this is just so wonderful. Well, as we take our time through it, uh, through this book, I'm going to kind of um, highlight maybe three different sections of this book, or three turns of the story and then start to talk about you and I, although you probably begin to see yourself in the story as it goes. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, if you would turn there. It's uh, right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel, if you're looking for it in your Bible. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had both lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, 
and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. First thing to kind of maybe point out about this story is that Ruth is a Moabite. Not to us, that doesn't mean anything. You know, it's Moabite, what is that? I mean, so what, right? But in Israel's story, the, the, the race of the Moabites, the Moabite people, uh, have come to be symbolic of something. In fact, uh, oftentimes when the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, introduces us to a people, they tell us who was the father of the such and such, the Ammonites or the Moabites, and they tell us what happened as if to say, look, this is kind of what uh, shapes their story for a long time. And so we find the story, the beginning of the Moabites in Genesis nineteen thirty-seven, and what it is is it's Lot's two daughters. And they get a little worried about what's going to happen and how there's no man for them to marry and no way for them to perpetuate their line. And so this, if you have younger kids, this could sound a little funny, but what Lot's daughters do is they say, look, let's get dad drunk and then we'll go in and convince him, trick him to sleeping with us in the hopes that we'll conceive. You you never knew the Bible was so scandalous. And so what happens here in verse 37, the older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, and he's the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, and he's the father of the Ammonites today. The reason the Bible's telling us is this is to say, look, their beginning, the beginnings of this people was shady, was on shaky ground from the very beginning. In fact, when the Bible goes on and tells us the story about Moabites, or tell us, tells us things about Moabites, uh, it, it doesn't help their case. Um, we're told that the Moabites are the ones who try to get Balaam to curse Israel. We're told in Numbers 25 that, that, that the Israelite men found Moabite women so beautiful they couldn't resist them, but when they fell in love with them and, you know, fell in love with them, they were led astray and they began to worship these other gods. And so it doesn't take long in the story before you realize that a Moabite is synonymous with a seductress with the person who seduces you away from what you're supposed to be. And in some ways, the reason Genesis tells us the story of Lot's daughters doing what they did is to see, look, even from the beginning, this is kind of the, the deal. And we're meant to see that these are people who are uh, um, synonymous maybe with seduction, with leading God's people away, and not only in, in relationships but in their very worship. During the time of the book of Judges, in fact, Moab rules over Israel for uh, 18 years. And so these people, don't, they're not friendly towards Israel. It's not like these guys had great relationships. In, in fact, probably um, the relationships were strained for a, a long time. And so for this guy, for Elimelech to go and to, and to take his sons and to go over to Moab, you know this times must have been tough. There must have been some kind of a famine for him to say, look, We've got to leave. We can't grow anything here. We're going to go over there and hope for something better. And he does this, and his boys marry these two women. Well, here's the thing. Ruth, from the get-go here, the first, one of the first things the book, the storyteller wants us to notice is she's not one of us. She's a Moabite. The story continues in verse 6. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now picture this. Uh, Ruth, in many ways, is the female counterpart story to Job. Ruth, Job, uh, these, are, these are part of the section of the Hebrew Scriptures called the writings. 
And in many ways, what you see happening to Ruth is almost like, wow, gee whiz, how, how did that happen? And then that, and that, or, or sorry, to, to Naomi. And so Naomi and Job are, 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 are similar in, in the things that sort of befall them. But so Naomi's going back with her two daughters-in-law. And then in verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. This is Naomi saying, hey, I'm old. You're young. There's more ahead for you. Stay here. This is where you're from. There's connections here. There's relationships here. Stay. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow? I mean, Naomi's kind of saying, do I need to spell this out for you? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. She's willing to say, look, the, the one who's had the, the, the brunt of this is me. I'll take the brunt. No need for your lives to be ruined too. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me, Naomi says. At this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is covenant language. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. First observation here, or maybe the first kind of way to kind of think through the story is this, that Ruth goes beyond obligation. Ruth goes beyond obligation. She has, there's nothing here that binds her to Naomi. There's nothing here that says you, you, you should do this. There's no, uh, in fact, Naomi has clearly three times here released her and says, go, 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 you know, and they, they both did the obligatory, no, we won't, on the first time, you know. The second time, Orpah says, okay, you know. Ruth, three, after three urges to leave, she will not deny Naomi. Three times. Three times she's asked. Three times she says, I'm not leaving. I'm clinging. I'm not leaving. I won't let go. But what's more remarkable about this is Ruth could stay, have stayed with Naomi and gone with her to Israel and not have said, your God will be my God. See, Israel, in one of its many unique things about it, had these provisions for foreigners. You could, if you wanted to come in and live, there were these provisions. This is how you could live and this is how you'd be taken care of. Uh, they, they were very friendly um, to, to foreigners who had come in for help. And yet Ruth says something beyond that. She says, no, I'm not interested in coming and just sort of being there. I'm coming to, essentially, she's saying, to be one of you. Your family is going to be my family. Your God's going to be. I'm renouncing an old life. I'm leaving an old identity. I'm shaking off an old me and old allegiances. And I'm taking hold of something new. 
She was essentially renouncing the Moabite part of her heritage and saying, no, I want to be like you. I want to be with the Israelites. I want the Israelites' God to be my God. The story goes on, and there's lots that happens in chapter 2, and and Ruth actually meets her hero, Boaz, in the grain field, and there's a nice little exchange there that we'll kind of skip through just for the the sake of teaching through this in a macro way, but we'll pick up the story here in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. What's interesting is you can kind of see the tone of Naomi changing throughout the story. In chapter 1, Naomi says, it's bitter for me. The Lord has, set his, the Lord has afflicted me. She says, call, don't call me, call me Mara because I'm bitter. She's embraced bitterness. And, and slowly, as Ruth starts to demonstrate and live out commitment in a, in a very bold way, it makes Naomi even turn. You ever seen that happen? Where someone maybe is sort of crotchety or bitter or upset, and then someone else, and maybe a kid walks in, you know, and just the whole mood kind of begins to turn. There's something about Ruth that makes even Naomi's spirit begin to turn to the point where Naomi kind of cares about her a little bit. She says, okay, well, let's find a home for you. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshold floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. And then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Can't bother a man when he's eating, right? Gee. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And Ruth listens to this and says, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Now, there are many ways to maybe look at this scene, and, and Ruth does exactly what Naomi tells her to do. And, and uh, of course, Boaz is startled. Um, when, when he sees Ruth there, and she says to him, she says, look, please spread your wings over me, cover me. May I find protection under your wings. And the Hebrew word there for wings it can also be translated as skirts, and it's very interesting because if you think of a young child who is a little bit afraid, and they look for the skirts of their mother and hides behind it. I think that's beautiful because if we think of God not just as God the Father, but maybe to have this mother side of his care, that there's a sense that we are like the kids hiding behind his skirts. And Ruth here is saying, look, there's this whole theme about this actually that we could have paid attention to, but Boaz has said to her early, oh, it's good for you that when he meets her in the grain field, he says, it's good that you've said that Yahweh's your God. May Yahweh's wings cover you. And now she comes to Boaz in the middle of the night and says, may your wings cover me. May I hide behind your skirt? It's as if Ruth knows that it's good and fine to talk about God being our provider, but very often God provides for us as we have the humility to ask for help from others. Isn't that interesting? It's just a little side note thing. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to say, well, God, I trust you, but God, will you really meet my need through this person and by me saying that I need help? What I want you to see about Ruth here is that she's sacrificing her reputation. However this scene plays out in your mind, one of the things we we must notice about this is that Ruth is essentially proposing to Boaz. She's essentially taking the initiative and saying, I need help. Would you 
would you, may I find favor in your, would you cover me? And she goes to him. Now, I know, I know, some of you girls are like, okay, so it's all right to ask a guy out, you know, like, I don't know. Yes, fine, whatever. But the point is, the point is that Ruth is taking a tremendous risk because in as much as that makes you nervous thinking of a girl asking a guy out, think about how that must have been way back when in the ancient world. This is a cardinal no-no. This is like, this is not how this thing works. Here Ruth comes and lays down at his feet, uncovers his feet. However we read this, this is in some ways Ruth proposing to Boaz, saying, hey, would you help me? She's sacrificing her reputation here, and there's something risky about that, something that she's willing to say, I need the help. The story goes on, and, and, and Boaz ends up saying, yes, yes, I want to do it. And then he realizes, oh, wait a minute, there's actually this other person who's a, a, a nearer of kin to you. Now, the way this kind of worked in, in the Levitical law was, look, if someone had died, and, 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 and Elimelech, this is Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech had this farm, had this property that he left when he moved to Moab, right? And the way it kind of worked in the ancient world was, look, if someone was going to rescue a family that was in need, it needed to be the person that was the closest of kin, the closest relative. And so even if Boaz wanted to, he had to follow protocol. It was really this guy's obligation first. And so it's a bit comical, I, I think, when it, the way it plays out, because Boaz meets this guy at the city gates, and they're chatting, and, uh, and he says, hey, have you heard that, that you've got a family here that's actually related to you that, that could use your help? And he says, all right, well... Kinsman redeemer, that's sort of the phrase, you know, I'll be, I'm the kinsman redeemer, okay, well, I'll do it. And then Boaz says, by the way, if you're going to unmortgage Elimelech's farm, so to speak, if you're going to buy the farm, what comes with the farm are a couple of widows, this older one, but then this younger one that you, you probably have to marry. And this guy in almost a comedic scene kind of realizes you know, lesson number one of real estate is don't over-leverage yourself. And so I've kind of got my own farm to take care of, and I really can't manage this right now. And so he says, okay, hey, 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 Boaz, if you want this, go ahead, man. And so they do this whole, like, throwing the sandal ceremony. And, and, and actually, actually, the ceremony is supposed to include uh, the widow spitting in the face of the kinsman redeemer who refuses it, as if to say, shame on you. You won't help, you know, a person in need like me, even though we're family, you're dead to me. No. So, but but they, they skip the spitting thing because this is between Boaz and this guy, and it's not really, Ruth is really not involved in this. And Boaz, uh, um, this is what he says in verse 9 of chapter 4. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's widow. Now, again, please uh, don't. It's hard for us to kind of think through this convention, but this is in no way purchasing a person. Uh, this is not what's going on here. This is the, if you're getting this person's farm, you're, you're getting all the responsibilities that come with it, and there's people who need support. And Boaz knew what he was doing. As my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And the elders and all the people at the gate say, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home. Now listen to this. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, we only need to know a little bit of Israel's story to know that these are some good blessings. May your household be like Rachel and Leah. May it be like. May your offspring be like Judah. Well, who can't? You know, who who would come from Judah's? There's, there's. These are good prophetic words, right? Except that it's a very strange blessing because in this blessing is a reminder that Israel's story itself includes some questionable stuff. Rachel and Leah. You mean the two women who were married to the same dude who thought he was marrying Rachel and got a surprise on his wedding night that it was Leah who worked another seven years so he could get the sister he really wanted? Imagine being Leah who throughout the early years of their marriage had this competition with each other about who would bear a son first and Rachel doesn't and Leah does and then Leah says, hey, here's my maidservant too. At some point, there's four women in this home with whom Jacob has 12 sons. I wonder how that plays into our image of the perfect family. You feel like you're disqualified? What if God's blessing includes a reminder that the people who get involved in his story are not always clean cut? And Judah, who comes from Tamar, the one who blackmailed her father-in-law or father into sleeping with her? Ooh, God, Glenn, can't we just tell a happy Jesus story? Why are, you, why are we reading these texts? These are such strange stories. Everybody knows from the beginning of this story of Ruth that she doesn't belong. She's a Moabite. She should have no part of the story of Israel. And yet... The storyteller brings the, one of the climactic moments as he's crescendoing the story. He says, and all the people blessed her and said, may you be like Rachel and Leah. In other words, we got skeletons in this whole family closet. May their offspring be like Judah. I wonder if we recognize ourselves in Ruth at all. I wonder if we have ever felt, if you have ever felt, ever felt like an outsider like a person who doesn't fit in here, that maybe you don't vote the same way that other Christians in this town vote, or maybe you, do, maybe you have a little different, maybe you do, whatever the reason is, maybe you don't feel like, there's, here's this mold of what it means to be like Christian, and I'm not that. Maybe you feel like it's, it's really not even your fault. Maybe stuff happened. Maybe things happened in life that altered your story in a way that you would have never chosen, but yet here you are. And so is it possible? Do I live condemned to be second class? Do I live sort of saying, well, I guess, yeah. Or is there hope? Is there a redeemer who redeems? Or are we doomed to always be an outsider? Do you think you've earned a reputation that you'll never shake? 
You think you've acquired a stain that you'll never wash away. A curve in the road that's defined you. Boaz, unmistakably, is a picture that's meant to make us think of Jesus. Because there is one who came, who put on human skin so that he could be our kinsman, our relative, our family, who came and walked where we walk and knows what it means to be tempted with every temptation that we face and feel. There is one who came. And it's not just that he's fully human, but that because he's fully God, he can redeem. Boaz makes us think of the greatest redeemer of all, Jesus who said to the worst outsiders they could possibly be, you can be in. It's not too late. It's not over. The book is not over. I wonder if, ooh, sorry, boy, that was anticlimactic. I wonder if Ruth had stopped when Naomi said, just leave, if she had said, all right, fine. How things would have been dramatically different. But yet Ruth says, I'm going. Wherever you go, I'm going. Your God will be my God. It's a way of saying this is not over. And some of you need to hear that tonight. That This, whatever this is, is not over. The last bits of the story have not been written. There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son. Are you Ruth? If you are, Jesus is Boaz. Can you throw yourself at his feet? Can you throw yourself at his feet and say, cover me under your wings, because I've got nothing, because I'm all out, because I'm hopeless, because there's no way anything changes without you. The book of Ruth is, in a very real way, a story of commitment. And we are meant to see the story of several people's commitments to one another. And obviously, you see Ruth's commitment to Naomi and Naomi's God right away in Ruth 1. By Ruth chapter 3, you see Naomi's eventual commitment to Ruth. At first, Naomi kind of says, ah, it's just me. In fact, when Naomi returns to Israel, she says, I've come back with nothing. How would you feel if you were Ruth standing right next to her? The Lord has, been, has dealt harshly with me, and I've come back with nothing. I'm here. Remember, I made this vow till I come with you. What am I? Nothing? Chopped liver? And Naomi, all of a sudden, her heart begins to turn. She has commitment. She says, okay, Ruth, uh, let's help you here. Why don't you do this? And, do... and then, of course, you see in, in chapter 4, Boaz's commitment to Ruth. There's this beautiful word that the Old Testament uses to describe God's covenant love. It's the word chesed. I was introduced to this word when I was 13. My parents had finished Bible school, and they were very excited about learning about chesed. And this chesed love of God is God's covenantal love. It's his, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, unchanging love. Yeah, that's the idea of chesed love. But I was introduced to this word because my parents were so excited about learning this word that when we got a dog, they named the dog Hesed, which is just terrible because, I don't know, I mean, the dog was loyal, but anyway. 
And then we couldn't, we couldn't tell if we should say hesed or chesed, you know. Anyway. But this word, hesed, shows up throughout the Old Testament at, at key moments. It shows up in the book of Hosea when God's trying to show his commitment to an adulterous people. He says, I am still in covenant, steadfast love with you. And you see this word used to describe God's story with Israel. You know what? This word shows up a few times in the book of Ruth. And it's pretty remarkable when it does. The first time it shows up, you may guess this, is in chapter 1, verse 8. When Naomi says to Ruth, you have shown me great kindness. You've shown me a kind of covenant love, steadfast love, kindness. Later, Boaz says this about Ruth. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Wow, your kindness to me is even beyond. It's a loving kindness, a steadfastness. Why is it? And he says to her, there's lots of other younger guys here, essentially. You've shown me this great kindness. As a side note, it's interesting that Ruth never describes her own covenant love. Others notice it and say it. Isn't that interesting? That maybe what's more important than our professing our love for others is that others say to us, I see the way you're loving me. And they tell us the kind of love we love them with. I think that's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with saying, I love you. But sometimes that gets cheap. Ruth never says, I will. She says, I'll she says these words that are a lot like it. But it's Naomi who says, Ruth, you have this kind of kindness. To her. It's Boaz who says, Ruth. You, you show this kind of love. There's something about that. But really, if the book of Ruth is about commitment, if the book of Ruth is the story of, of, of a steadfast love, you know whose love is really at the center of the story? It's God. Because the third time this word hesed shows up is in chapter 2, verse 20. When Naomi turns from being bitter Naomi, saying that God has afflicted me, all of a sudden says this, the Lord bless him. He's talking about Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative and he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Ruth 2 verse 20 in the message says this way, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, why God bless that man. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. And Naomi went on. That man, Ruth, is one of our circle of covenant redeemers, a close relative of ours. Church, the story of the book of Ruth is a story about how God has not yet walked out on you. That's why our New Testament reading for tonight said, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. If Nehemiah was an icon of faithfulness, Ruth for us is an icon of commitment but not just an inspiration of our commitment to God, but ultimately a reminder of God's commitment to us. It would be wrong to walk out of here and say, okay, well, great, so I've got to be like Ruth and I've got to have this commitment. You know, certainly there may be something about that. But the heart of this story is the story of a Redeemer who embodies for Naomi and Ruth a God who has never stopped his commitment to the living and to the dead. That's amazing. Can we pray?
David, I don't know if you're in here or if any of your team is here to play a little instrument, but if you are, great. If not, it's all right. We can pray without music. The climactic moment of Ruth's story is a genealogy. There's no other book in the Bible that ends with a genealogy. And the ones that begin with them, we usually skip, right? Ruth ends with a genealogy. You know why? Because it's telling us how Ruth had this son, 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 who ultimately had David. David. The book of Ruth is written after the fact. It's written after the fact to say, let me give you the prequel. You all know David. You all know David's stories. But let me tell you the backstory. That's what's amazing about this. The climactic moment of the book of Ruth is a genealogy, as if to say, no matter how your story began, it can always find its way wrapped up into the story of what God is doing. Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Only four women mentioned in it. One of them is Tamar. One of them is Ruth. There is no story that is so stained that it cannot be woven into Jesus' story of redemption. No matter how stained your story is, when you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, He redeems you. And somehow your story gets woven into God's great story of salvation. That is the power of the Redeemer. You bow your heads tonight. What's the stain? What's the exclusion? What's the mark? What's the stigma? What's the thing you think you won't shake? What makes you feel like an outsider, like you don't fit, like you don't belong, like your story couldn't possibly be woven in? Would you throw yourself at the feet of the Redeemer tonight? Jesus, would you redeem? Jesus, we surrender throw ourselves at your feet. We take this tremendous risk of sacrificing our reputation, showing our weakness, saying God help. We're hiding behind your skirts. Take it. Redeem. Breathe. Work. Thank you for the way that you do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all thank God, everybody.